You're listening to the Belfer Center's Office Hours. Watch highlights from this and other Office Hours interviews on YouTube at youtube.com slash belfercenter. Arup sat down with Hatla Logadochter, former director of the Iceland School of Energy at Reykjavik University and co-founder of the Belfer Center's Arctic Initiative. People talk a lot about how the Arctic is under threat, how it's melting. But, you know, if you look at those Coca-Cola ads, things look pretty peachy up there. The polar bears and Santa Claus uh, seem to be doing just fine. So what's going on? Well, I think that's exactly how many people see the Arctic, right? They see it as the home of the polar bear. They think about it as a very isolated part of our world. But the truth is that, is that the Arctic is actually uh, covers a part of eight different states. And it is one of the regions that is changing the, the fastest in the world today. So it's, it's still peaceful, but it's uh, anything else than just the home of the polar bear or the Santa Claus. So, so somebody's got to call up Coca-Cola and let them know that actually things, are, things haven't, been that, <laughs> haven't been the same for so long. That may be necessary, yeah. yes. There's much more interest of private companies in the Arctic region. Um, not because of, of the polar bear, but because of all the uh, resources that are becoming much uh, more accessible now with the impacts of, the, of climate change. So you're seeing uh, multinationals, mining companies, oil and gas companies that have been showing the region increased uh, interests. So slightly f- uh, further away from the image perhaps than of, of Coca-Cola or the polar bear. So, so, well, yeah, so tell us more, what, what's going on up there? What's mm. happening? What's being uncovered? Mm. And why are people so interested in it? Well, there, so the region is changing rapidly due to the impacts of climate change. It is a region that is warming at least twice as fast uh, as the rest of the globe. And it's having multiple consequences, both locally for, for communities living in the region and globally. People don't often think about uh, the fact that there are 40 different indigenous groups uh, in the Arctic with different languages and so forth. Spread across the entire Arctic Circle, is that right? Exactly. So when you, when people have this image in, in their mind that it's the region of the polar bear, that it's a very closed and isolated region, right. that's not uh, the correct image. And I think, you know, it's important to think about uh, and keep in mind when we're uh, talking about the future of the Arctic, mm. that it's, it's, it's the future of communities also in the Arctic and, and how these changes can uh, be managed uh, for their uh, benefits. And, and perhaps just to, to give you some examples, um, the environment is changing dramatically. You're seeing the sea ice um, uh, melting more and more every year. Mm. So this uh, region that is traditionally relatively isolated is becoming more and more accessible. There's more traffic in the region. And not to mention the, the environmental and climate impacts mm. that, it's, uh, that are taking place. It remains to be seen how the Ar- Arctic uh, will develop over time. But I think it, we can surely say that you know, with the increased interest in natural resources, with the opening up of the, of the region, mm. and with the tensions between environmental uh, uh, issues and economic development, that there's going to be a lot of of things to keep in mind for policymakers in the future. Yeah, so I've, I've heard a little bit about the, mm. uh, the permafrost challenges. Mm. Mm. Um, and tell me more about what's going on there. Well, with the warming in the Arctic region, um, the, the, the permafrost is thawing. So the ground is thawing, ground that has been frozen for you know, hundreds or Permanently mil- frozen, right? Permafrost. Yeah, permafrost, yeah. exactly. 
And, and the challenge is that much of the infrastructure in some communities in the Arctic is actually built on this permafrost. So we're seeing in some communities, we're seeing roads being dismantled, we're seeing houses being impacted. So we're, we're foreseeing that some communities and some of them actually already have to be relocated in the Arctic region, so, such as is already happening now in Alaska. Yeah, and it's not a small number of people. There are millions of people who live within the Arctic Circle. Is that correct? So yeah, that is true. Uh, not all of them are, are live in houses or are facing the same challenges, but this is definitely one of the one of the uh, of the key problems when you think about infrastructure that is based in the Arctic, you know, who's going to pay for relocating roads or relocating communities mm -hmm. and not to speak about the cultural implications of having to move uh, villages from yeah. one uh, place to another. Yeah, where, where do those people even go? Do they stay in the same country? I mean, is this uh, at this point uh, reached the point of some sort of refugee crisis or are we just starting to see the beginnings of it? We're starting more to see the beginnings of it. You've actually had um, and it's a very tricky uh, concept when you think about the costs and so forth. Uh, actually, uh, uh, the uh, the town of Novak in, in Alaska um, has recently gotten some funding to start to relocate, but not covered all of its costs. So it's a problem that we need to focus more on. But maybe to add on the permafrost, it's not only uh, the question of, of, of permafrost melting impact in the Arctic region. Uh, the permafrost is also, also contains a lot of CO2 and methane, um, powerful greenhouse gases, as we know, uh, that with the warming uh, in the Arctic are being more and more released to the atmosphere mm -hmm. and are having or contributing more and more to the impact. So it's of like it's change. getting worse as it's as it's getting worse. It's, it's increasingly get, getting worse. Exactly. Um, it's it, like a feedback loop. That's basically. right. And even with the ice, I mean, since the water is darker than the ice, yeah. it absorbs heat, yeah. and so it and so the Arctic melts faster exactly. than other parts of the world. So exactly. it's a it's a part of the world that we should keep our eye on because it sounds like it is it is it's an, at a, happening at an accelerated pace is where we would see elsewhere so we can get, kind of get a sense of what's going to happen in other parts of the world yeah to some extent yes and you can and, and just as you were pointing out um, the melting in the Arctic is accelerating changes that further increase the impacts of climate change so uh, everyone should be uh, concerned about what is happening in the Arctic so when, when the when the ice melts mm. um, to what extent is the impact local mm. uh, and to what extent is it global? Does it affect places far away from the Arctic? Absolutely. We're seeing that through sea level rise. We're seeing that already in cities like New York and Boston. You know, you're seeing that in Florida, for instance, here in the US. And of course, islands are disappearing in some parts of the world. Uh, the Arctic also plays a very important uh, role when it comes to uh, the climate system in, in the world. Um, so we are going to be seeing more droughts, uh, more storms and so forth in different places than the Arctic because of the changes that are happening in the Arctic. Mm -hmm. So one can say that, you know, what happened in the Arctic does not stay in the Arctic. It's global issues. It's the opposite of Vegas, yeah, I'm exactly, told. That's right. Exactly. Um, so uh, is there a tension here? Because it sounds like there is a lot of economic opportunities yeah. and companies are interested in it. And yeah. Uh, and then there's uh, the idea that you want to protect against these other adverse influences. Yeah. Um, is there a tension? And I guess I have in mind China here because I know that they're mm -hmm. investing. They're now they lobbied for 
uh, observer status on the Arctic Council. Mm -hmm. They, even though they have no Arctic territory, mm -hmm. of course, they beeped up their embassy in Reykjavik. Mm -hmm. So they're eyeing these economic opportunities, mm -hmm. not to mention other companies in the U.S. and elsewhere. Yeah. Wow. Is there is there a tension? There is tension. Um, these are opportunities, but there are tensions and. There are big questions about how do we move forward? How do we do things correctly? So we end up, we end up with outcomes that are sustainable for the region mm -hmm. and for the rest of the world. Um, and you speak about the potential. Uh, the Arctic is very rich in natural resources. 30% of the world's untapped oil and a part of the world's untapped gas is in the region, although it's very expensive to, to develop it. Um, mining big possibilities when it comes to mining rare earth minerals mm -hmm. and so forth um, and and but many of the many of the issues are you know how can we develop or should we develop this given the potential environmental impact right and so it, i mean on your in your in mm. your estimation it's mm. not worth it i assume uh, you would want to protect against that sort of process it's important uh, to do things right, and it's important to have a long-term vision of how to develop and what to develop and what to preserve and so forth. And you can see if you look at um, developments that have been taking place in Alaska when, when Shell was uh, uh, planning to drill there. You can see if you look at uranium um, uh, developments in, in South and Greenland and Kranifield. Uh, you can see if you look at potential oil and gas exploration northeastern of, of, of Iceland, all of these uh, regions, uh, all of these projects have had uh, controversies. There's been uh, a huge opposition uh, against the development. So, mm -hmm. and I'm, I'm assuming that we're going to see only more of more, more and more of these tensions in the future. Um, I read something about it several years ago that mm -hmm. he said more is known about the surface of Mars. Than, than the Arctic, as it, it is really an underexplored area. Of course, there are a lot of scientific expeditions that go out there. Is, is, that, is that accurate still today? Um, do we still just not know so much about this area? Yeah, to some extent, to some extent that is true. I mean, it, it is interesting that this is a part of our planet that has traditionally been closed in, in, in right, many ways. Get there, right. Yeah, because because of or relatively isolated mm -hmm. and now it's opening up and there's a lot of questions that come with that change with these environmental changes mm -hmm. and that's the reason why we need so much more research and education mm -hmm. on the on the on the region because we need to make sure that we can actually apply lessons from elsewhere when we start to make policies to avoid that we end up with with outcomes in the Arctic that you know, we're short-sighted or we didn't really think through or we didn't know enough about something uh, when we when we plan. And, and, and who and who does those? Are those are those government oriented? Are they university led? Are they, you know, uh, just yeah. science institutes? I mean, who? Um, so we're doing some some things here at, at Harvard through the Arctic Initiative and through other parts of the university and and at different universities and governments around the world. And I would say that these issues are so big that we need everyone to focus on them. We won't solve the Arctic challenges, particularly the environmental challenges, by any one single party. Yeah. Well, why don't you think people are taking it, uh, have invested enough? Is it because it's so, such a, you can't really see the, I mean, it, it takes a long time to see the effects? I mean, why aren't people? Yeah, I mean, the impacts of climate change, um, are such that you don't feel the urgency so much. It's not, 
it's not something that is in front of you every day. And, and even if you look at, even if you look at the, just the traditional map of the world that people see in Europe and in, in the US, you know, it, it basically cuts off the, the pole region. It's so, like a 2D map yeah, instead of a 3D. Exactly. Design, right? So it's, 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 I think it's, um, I think it's um, normal that people haven't been, you know, so much thinking about the issues, but giving their importance for the global environment, giving their importance for um, international trade in the future, uh, the fact that we're seeing completely different relationship between Asia and Europe, mm. the relevance and the importance is there. And at the same time, it's going to have uh, a growing impact on, on people's daily lives. And that's where people start to, to care. And we need to make them care as well. So the Belfer Center's Arctic mm. Initiative, which was just announced this last fall, mm. uh, that you were co-founder of, mm. what exactly uh, are you trying to do and what, what are your goals? Mm. We are focusing on uh, policies. We're trying to help policymakers to have better information and to learn from lessons elsewhere about how we can address the issues in the Arctic on time to make sure that we don't end up with disastrous outcomes. Mm -hmm. uh, we focus on education. Uh, we have a special innovation program just focused on the Arctic region. Uh, we do research. We've been focusing now on, on the Arctic Ocean, ocean pollution and so forth, which is a growing big issue. Uh, and then we convene on Arctic issues. As you uh, talked about earlier, people don't know about, you know, what is happening in the Arctic. And a part of the, of the role that we can play is to bring people together and is to, to help the world understand what is happening in the Arctic region. And you felt there was a gap here. You felt that universities yes. and places were not spending enough yeah. attention and that's why yeah exactly it's um, not only in the u.s but globally the the arctic issues are of that scale and magnitude and happening so fast that we need many more players to step into this field and and to work together on finding solutions uh, you know if the if the arctic feels neglected yeah. how do you think the antarctic feels because well, you know there's the arctic initiative and there's these there are institutes yeah. but yeah. Nobody, nobody gives the Antarctic any love and maybe they feel a little well, lonely. <laughs> well, um, there's a lot of research actually been, been done and collaborations around uh, uh, Antarctica. What is, what is different in the Arctic is that the Arctic is actually home of millions of people and it's, it's, it's not an, a region that, is, uh, that there is a treaty that to only preserve it. It's a, it's a region that, again, it covers eight different states and you, you, you hardly ever think about that, you know, Russia is almost half of the Arctic Circle. U.S. and Russia are close neighbors in this region. You can literally, you know, see between Russia and the U.S. in the Arctic. And then you have the Nordic countries and Canada. So it's, it's, um, it's, it's completely different in nature. And, and, and I think that's why um, it is so important for, for uh, the, for future developments to, to, uh, to plan and to find out how we can better collaborate and research. On yeah, this yeah. And in the, the Antarctic, nobody is planting uh, a flag on the seabed like the Russians did, I think, what, 10 years ago or something like that. Yeah. So there is a little more geopolitical tension in the Arctic than there is in the Antarctic. Yes, and because, because we're, we're talking about very different landscape. Mm -hmm. We're talking about sovereign states mm -hmm. here um, playing a very different role. And um, 
Yes, there have been some uh, increased tensions in the region, but historically the, the Arctic is a zone of peaceful collaboration. It's actually very interesting if you look at the period of the Cold War, um, um, Gorbachev had this famous speech in Murmansk in 1987 where he said the vision of the, of the Arctic region should be that it's, it's a zone of peace, it's a zone of peaceful collaboration. So hopefully we'll manage to have continue to have it a zone of peaceful collaboration in the future. Uh, so on that point, uh, is there, uh, when most of the people do think of it as an environmental or science-based issue, yeah. is there a security element here that anyone's concerned about um, or that we should think more about? Absolutely. Um, uh, with increased interest of, of both countries in the Arctic uh, region and also China and other international players in, for instance, de developing resources, uh, in the region, there are higher stakes, and we're, we're seeing that these higher stakes means uh, lead to more traffic in the region. So you have more environmental risks, for instance, if you're thinking about oil drilling or mining and so forth. So there's the security element when it comes to to environmental issues. We have also seen uh, increased uh, military activity in the region. And, and um, particularly on the on the Russia side, more activities and so forth. And they're they're building bases or what? Yeah, the... yeah, reopening bases, investing in icebreakers and so forth, mm -hmm. um, also for their economic development. So um, it's going to be interesting to to see uh, where that leads in the future. But there are many signs too, if you look at the Arctic Council and if you look at international collaboration, that we can manage uh, things. Uh, in a very peaceful, constructive manner. Great. Um, now you're you're from an Arctic country. Yeah. You're from Iceland. Yes. But Greenland is a cold one. Well, <laughs> it's actually rained for thirty days now in Iceland uh, during May. So both places are cold. But yes, Greenland is definitely the winner. But, but uh, the the uh, but you I mean tell us a little bit more. I mean you were you grew up on a, a sheep farm as I take it in, in mm. Iceland. Um, you seem to have a personal connection to this a little mm. bit. Are you have you over the course of your life have you, do you see changes in the Icelandic landscape uh, just uh, from climate change? Absolutely. So I I was fortunate to to spend a lot of time growing up uh, on my grandparents' farm, which is in the southeast of Iceland. It's located in a uh, close to a small town co called Kirkjubæjar Cluster. Um, and you, might you might need to say that again. <laughs> yeah, which is um, it's actually right between Eyjafjallajökull, the famous glacier or the volcano that erupted uh, in 2007. Ruined everybody's European plans in 2010. <laughs> we are still sorry about that. Uh, and Vatnajökull, which is uh, Europe's biggest glacier. And I, 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 I remember and I still see it. I just came from Iceland. Um, well, I was just in Iceland uh, some weeks ago. You can, you can see how the glacier that I pass uh, when I'm driving to my farm, how it's shrinking every day. Mm -hmm. And I think it's uh, extremely important for us to, to take uh, climate change seriously. And even though it's not a matter that we feel so urgently in our everyday life, uh, that we, we, respond, we uh, respond to it in a, res in a responsible manner for future generations. Well, how, what has Iceland done uh, when you look at Iceland's policies? Because they have a yeah. few interesting policies, yeah. uh, their way of heating, for instance. Yeah. What, what, what have they done uh, to combat this? Well, Iceland is, is quite privileged when it comes to its access to renewable energy. Uh, we are basically sitting on volcanoes. We have 200 volcanoes 
uh, and active volcanoes in Iceland uh, that we use, we harness their heat uh, to heat our houses. So 90% of Iceland's uh, houses are heated with geothermal That's energy. Incredible. And most of our electricity also comes from um, hydropower and so forth. So we are definitely one of the greenest nations on the planet and have uh, managed to export some of the knowledge internationally to help other communities combat climate change. So that's an example of a field where Iceland has uh, had an impact internationally and hopefully we'll do more of that. But how do you replicate that? I mean, of course, Iceland is such a, is a unique country for so many yeah. different reasons. Yeah. I mean, you could say demographically, its size, its mm. population, its, it, its access to resources. Mm. Um, the ability to institute these things on a smaller scale is mm. easier than in a place, say, like Russia or the United States or China, which are mm. these huge, huge areas. Mm. How do you replicate that? And what does Iceland do to, uh, to promote those sorts of... Um, so there are many, uh, in some cases, we're focusing on uh, helping countries around the world to develop their geothermal resources. And geothermal um, has much more potential in the world that, uh, that um, has been explored already. I think people don't realize that one of the biggest district geothermal heating systems in Europe is in Paris. So um, we have been working with countries in, in Africa and Asia and Europe developing their geothermal uh, potential. So that's one way of doing it. Um, another way is that, you know, when Iceland undertook the, the path of moving from fossil fuels to renewables, uh, we were extremely poor nation. We were uh, trying to, um, uh, this was shortly after independence, we were trying to find ways to, um, to develop and, and, and get investments into our communities and so forth. So I think it's the stories also on inspirations for, you know, that even though you're poor and small, you know, you can still do ambitious things uh, like Iceland managed to do with its renewable energy resources. Uh, that's right. I mean, Iceland is now one of the world's uh, most affluent nations. Um, it's, it, you know, certainly in the in GDP uh, purchasing <gasps> power parity, it's <gasps> in the top, I don't know, 10 or 20 in the world. Um, so it seems to be doing quite well, despite this. I mean, that, that seems to be one of the greatest tensions, I think, in a lot yeah. of uh, people's minds is that, you know, do you sacrifice something economically mm. to invest in sustainability? Mm. And they don't want to sacrifice what they think of as short-term wealth mm. for uh, a long-term sustainability. Mm. But it seems like Iceland has won both of those battles. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a complex picture, but uh, Iceland has certainly managed to, to take advantage of its renewable energy resources and to form policies around other resources, such as our fishery resources, um, in a way that is uh, sustainable for our economic development. Um, so hopefully there's some lessons there that we can share internationally. I want to move back to Iceland. Uh, okay. You know, most Americans, uh, as you mentioned, the, and you might have to help me here, the Eyjafjallajökull. Jokuk. Yes. Is that right? Yeah, pretty okay, good. Okay, all right, not so bad. <laughs> that, uh, that, that, that volcano that, um, that disrupted everyone's, uh, all of Europe for, for so many, for so many uh, days. You know, most Americans also are familiar with skier yogurt. Yeah. Um, what, what are some things about Icelandic culture that you're, you're particularly proud of? One of the things that I'm particularly proud of is gender equality. We score among the highest in the world, uh, usually the top two or three when it comes to equality between men and women. Um, we still have some, uh, you know, we still have some problems to fix, mm -hmm. uh, but this is something that, you know, allows uh, women in the Icelandic society to particularly uh, develop their skills and, and p take part in the society. Mm. 
Has that always been the case, or is that something of more of a recent development in Iceland? Um, it has not always. It's been grow women's empowerment has been growing in Iceland as in in other uh, parts of the world. Um, but I would say it's Iceland is a part of the the Nordic cultures where gender equality has has played a bigger role uh, compared to many other places in the world. So that is definitely something That's that I'm proud of. That's top of the list. Okay. That I'm that I'm proud of and and it's good news for instance f uh, for my daughter and something that we work on exporting and, and sharing lessons uh, with other uh, communities around the world. Um, another thing um, that I'm particularly proud of in Iceland's uh, culture. There's so many things. How much time do you have? <laughs> I'm particularly proud of um, how Icelanders um, uh, their care for the land and their environment and how. Um, how it's rooted in the society that there's a value in untouched land and in, in the concept of, of mm -hmm. wilderness and so forth. I think, you know, we often think about the economic, um, uh, the economic opportunities of development, but there's also economic opportunities in, in wilderness because we see less of that uh, in the world today, less and less with increased developments in the world today. You know, I'm, I'm proud of all of that. Um, everything from, from these bigger concepts to um, the fact that we have 13 Santa Clauses. And, Sorry, what? Yeah, you have 13? We, we have 13 Santa Clauses. So, um, um, is it a Lutheran nation? <laughs> yeah, but we have there. Actually, the Icelandic Santa Clauses are very uh, different from, from others. They, are, okay. they all play a particular role in, in the whole of December. So, our, yeah, the Viking culture um, and, and our culture in general are sagas. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So wait. Let's go back to the. Let's see. Yeah, let's just stick on the Santa Clauses. So yeah. they're all like they look different, or they are versions of the same one, or are they all siblings? Are they all brothers? <laughs> they're uh, yeah. They're all siblings, yeah. and their parents are trolls, and they <laughs> and they come. Um, wow. They they come thirteen days in December, and uh, you know they give kids something. They're called door slammer, and you know one is the skier eater, and and so forth. So. They're quite naughty. It, yeah. Oh, they're quite naughty. Yeah, yeah. Oh, they're a different type of. They're a different breed of Santa Claus. Yeah, they're and absolutely we'll, <laughs> very different. There's a, a historical element of of <laughs> Iceland is interesting. Of course, they have a the the Vikings came across. <laughs> I don't know how many, maybe a thousand years ago or something like that. <laughs> uh, stopping in Scotland, I think, on the way. Is that correct? Something. Something like that. Yeah. Um, so yeah, tell me tell me more about that. Is that, that does that feature in local culture in, in terms of mythology and <laughs> lore? Are the Vikings very present in today's Icelandic culture? I would say that Icelanders are very proud of, of, of their Viking origin. And I think that to some extent, you know, how well Icelanders have done in specific fields is because of, of this pride, of this, um, this history of, of, of coming to this remote island and having to build up a, a community. Um, and an element that we particularly cherish are the Icelandic sagas. We can still read the Icelandic language can, is, hasn't changed so much. So we can still read all these sagas of the Vikings, know how, how the way of living was when they came and how they developed our society. And I think this connection is extremely important and something that Icelanders are very proud of having. I mean, it's so interesting. The history of Iceland, some people call it the world's oldest democracy. They had mm -hmm. a very... Uh, I, I once I think did a did a group project in in college on Iceland, and I remember 
uh, reading about how there were town council meetings and voting, and but there wasn't an executive branch. There was a legislative and a judicial branch, and they had these kind of beginnings of democracy, but well, well, well before you know 1776 in the United States. And you're you're exactly right. Like the development of democracy and the fact we have one of the oldest democracies in the world that is still has kind of continued over time is something that we are very proud of and. Um, participation of, of people in decision-making is is still high in Iceland. Uh, people care about the issues. People care about the future of, of, of our country. And it's it's always been and is so exciting to, to be a part of that community. And I, I wanted to end on one final question about yeah. surnames in mm -hmm. Iceland. It's also mm -hmm. one of the more interesting. You, you mentioned your, your daughter and your, mm -hmm. your last name. Um, or why don't you just, just tell me about it? Yeah, so in Iceland we don't have traditional family names. Uh, so the way it works is that you have your father's first name and then you add a dóttir or a son, depending on if you're a son or a daughter. So I am Loga dóttir because my father's name is Logi. So I, and my brother is Loga son because he's the son of Logi. And then my daughter has a different family yeah. name and my husband has a different one, all with the same rule. Yeah. So traveling can sometimes be oh, tricky. It must be a nightmare. Well, how do you even know who's related to each other? Well, you don't. <laughs> <laughs> but um, you can kind of trace it back, right? Yeah. You know, um, but it's, um, it's a tradition that used to be like this in, in more countries than Iceland, but kind of got stuck in Iceland and we, we still uh, we still, um, you know, keep it this way and are, are, are proud of this tradition today. Hatla, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Office Hours was produced by the Belfer Center for Science and International Affairs at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government.